Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Today we'll be talking about a wider region of Eastern Europe. We will start with Ukraine's neighbor, Moldova, in which a popular anti-corruption and pro-European politician Maya Sandu has won the presidential election last weekend over a pro-Russian incumbent president Igor Dadon. What does this victory mean for Moldova? How can we compare developments in Moldova, Ukraine and Belarus, and what are the dynamics in Eastern Europe in general? And how the tragic conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh can influence other frozen conflicts in the region in which Russia is playing a decisive role, like Transnistria in Moldova or Donbass in Ukraine? My guest today is Niko Popescu, a prominent Moldova-born expert, director of Wider Europe program at the European Council on Foreign Relations and previously Minister of Foreign Affairs and European Integration in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Maya Sandu in 2019. Hello, Niku. Thanks so much for joining us. So my first question, the elections in Moldova and the victory of Maya Sandu. How you interpret this success? Well, that's a strong mandate given to Maya Sandu for primarily for her uh, anti-corruption stance and campaigning. She has been someone who, she's, she is someone who has built over the years the reputation of, uh, of a politician who has zero tolerance towards corruption. That's a reputation she built as Minister of Education and she was in go- engaged in a very deep education reform and she was fighting corruption quite a lot in the education sector. And that is how several years ago she became one of the most popular politicians in Moldova. And then partly responding to that demand, she created a party and ended up being a president now. But uh, she beat uh, the pro-Russian previous president, Mr. Dodon. And it seems that pro-European forces previously in Moldova were were losing their popularity. So how did she succeed to overcome this lack or deficit of popularity of European vector in Moldovan society? You know, I think I take a a somewhat longer-term view on this, but I find that both in Moldova and in Ukraine, the popularity of European integration has been going up and down, often depending on who is in power. I remember some opinion polls in Ukraine showing that the popularity of European integration went down after the... Uh, during the presidency of Yushchenko and the popularity of EU started going up under Yanukovych. So sometimes these popularity levels, they are counter-cyclical. In the case of Moldova, we had several ups and downs like like that. Uh, Part of the reason as to why the popularity of European integration started going down was that um, Several pro-European politicians in Moldova were engaged in major corruption scandals. That was around 2014-15. And this is when the popularity of EU started going down. Um, However, what happened after that was that Maya Sandu has created a new political force and there is another center-right pro-European party called PDA. They have cleaned themselves. They came with a much more credible set of politicians with less corruption. They behaved uh, responsibly in the government. So they have managed to build basically a less corrupt political force on the pro-European spectrum, which allowed them to partly now regain the presidency and popular support, but also partly to rehabilitate 
the image of European Union, which was no longer associated with with previous uh, governments. It's very interesting, and we talk about Sando and Dodon, but can you maybe uh, explain us a little bit wider what is the political scene in Moldova? Who are the other actors? We know Mr. Plachotnyuk, know Mr. Usate. Maybe you could just map them uh, in in a, in a in a broader uh, context. Well, generally. The Moldovan political political spectrum is divided between left and right based on the geopolitical preferences and foreign policy orientations of the parties. So in Moldova, if you would rather prioritize relations with Russia, political parties are considered to be left-wing, and if they, these parties would rather uh, prioritize relations and integration with Romania, NATO, or the European Union, they are considered right-wing. That very often has no relationship to their economic program. Sometimes Moldovan left-wing parties implemented quite liberal, economically liberal policies, and some of the Moldovan right-wing parties actually have economic policies which in most other countries would be considered left-wing. So in this sense, the spectrum is divided by the foreign policy attitudes of political players. There is even a Moldovan kind of a joke and expression is that and this joke says that Moldova doesn't have political parties, Moldova only has geopolitical parties. In this sense, I think the the political spectrum is quite similar to that of Ukraine to a degree. Then, on top of that, you had several uh, rich individuals and oligarchs who have been coming in and out of politics and they have often you know, presented themselves as pro-European or pro-Russian. They have tried to abuse this positioning and this image building for corrupt purposes. Fundamentally, I don't think, you know, when, when the main occupation of a politician is to steal money from the state budget or from the population, uh, I don't... I don't think the way of looking at them is to call them pro-European or pro-Russian. I think a corrupt uh, politician is a corrupt politician, irrespective of what uh, foreign policy they prefer. That's in a nutshell what happened. But on on this interaction between corruption and uh, and foreign policy orientation, I think we're in a, a somewhat new environment for Moldova for several reasons. Uh, one is, as I said, uh, Maya Sandu and some other political forces on the right are seen as being much less corrupt than, than uh, you know, the center and the left-wing spectrum. And that's something new. So you have a situation where the Socialist Party, by association with Dodon, is now enmeshed in several uh, corruption scandals. If they will find them, the forces to clean themselves, uh, that will be good for Moldova as a country because you cannot build uh, a, cor- a, a country that is less corrupt if the political parties remain equally corrupt as before. Uh, and another interesting thing that happened in Moldova in recent years is that the the center, usually in Moldova before, the right-wing parties, pro-European parties, were very fragmented. So you had three, four political parties fighting for the same 20-25%. And the left, the socialists or the communists were usually consolidated in one big party. This time is probably the first time in Moldova when the situation reversed. You had one strong candidate on the center-right, and that is Maya Sandu, and she could attract a very strong uh, uh, support from the whole of the center-right spectrum, and the left-wing vote was split between Dodon and Osate, 
who is a Moldovan who used to live in Russia. He became rich, came back to Moldova, and he started and he did decrease uh, Dodon's support by basically fishing more or less in the same spectrum of voters. Uh, it's very interesting, but uh, what's what situation with Mr. Plachotnyuk? Is he still uh, in exile in the United States? Well, Plachotnyuk escaped from the country. He probably influences the behavior of several uh, members of parliament. It's not very clear uh, of how many. Um, like a year and a half ago, when he was still in the country and Moldova held parliamentary elections in February 2019, Plachotnyuk controlled directly more or less a third of the parliament. Uh, his party split in the meantime. Plachotnyuk escaped first to the United States and then he, he left the United States um, a couple of months ago. There were some speculations that he might have been in Turkey or maybe he left Turkey. In this sense, I'm not someone who, who would know for sure the latest whereabouts and this is not public knowledge. But what is clear is that his previous party called the Democratic Party basically disintegrated into several groups and independent members of parliament. What We we can assume that Plachotnyuk still influences the behavior of several members of parliament, but he has lost that united political force that he used to run, which he used to run uh, and dominate Moldovan politics called the Democratic Party. Let me come back to Maya Sander, maybe the last question about Moldova, and then we will move to a wider region. So you said the, uh, the the strongest point of Maya Sander is fight against corruption. Does she have a clear plan how how she's going to do that? Because we look at, at Ukraine, at neighboring Ukraine, there are lots of, you know, talk about fighting against corruption. There are new institutions established, but uh, it seems that we are still on the point where we were in 2013. What's about Moldova? Well, uh, Moldova is is a semi-parliamentary republic and the presidency does not have a lot of powers in Moldova. It has some powers. It's not, you know, the Moldovan presidency is not as weak institutionally as, as the presidency of Germany, for example. But it, it is less strong institutionally than the presidencies of countries like Ukraine or France. In this sense, uh, Maya Sandu's victory in these presidential elections offer her the capacity and possibility to block and limit certain corruption schemes, uh, certain attempts to appoint, for example, corrupt judges. It gives her some powers through the National Security Council to monitor the situation. But of course, for large-scale and deep structural reforms, she would need a majority, a functioning majority in um, in the parliament. And for that, she has also run in this campaign with a clear pledge that she will try to provoke early elections. It is not very clear when this would happen, uh, but, uh, you know, her immediate next step in terms of fighting the fight against corruption is to get a working parliamentary majority, uh, possibly, probably between her party and some coalition members, but the main thing is to have a working majority of the parliament which can appoint a government, and this is when you can launch uh, more structural reforms. What is also clear is, of course, this is never easy. It is not going to be easy in Moldova either. It will not be quick for someone like Maya Sandu to change the political system, but uh, that's a major step and an important step in the direction of trying to make the country uh, be governed better. 
So if you want, you know, one of the expression that uh, people have been using since Maya Sandu's victory uh, at last Sunday, the elections is that from now on things will be very difficult, but they will be less difficult than before. It's very interesting. Uh, let's look at the wider region. You know, we have Moldova, in which a pro-European candidate has won the election against a pro-Russian candidate. Let's put it in, in a very simplistic way. We have Ukraine, where, well, there are lots of signs of a kind of a revanchism going back to, you know, some pre-Maidan times. But still, I mean, officially, there is a clear vector towards EU integration, NATO integration, and Mr. Zelensky doesn't change Uh, much compared to uh, Mr. Poroshenko. And we have Belarus, in which there are dramatic protests still going on for already uh, almost four months. So do you have the impression that this this part of Europe, Eastern Europe, in different ways, it's moving much closer to Europe than before? Yes, I do have this impression, but not so much because of, of the exact events that you have mentioned. Uh, I have been several times through these very heightened and intensified hopes that now is the moment when a country like Ukraine or a country like Georgia or Moldova will finally get much closer to Europe. I remember everyone had similar feelings after the Rose Revolution, after the Orange Revolution, after uh, the the power change in Moldova in 2009 when an alliance called the Alliance for European Integration came to power. So more often than not, these country leaders brought the countries closer to Europe, but then also ended up um, in all kinds of complicated situations, either thanks to either related to corruption or, you know, or in the case of Georgia, we had the war with Russia. So this road to Europe is is not easy, is not quick, and politicians come and go. And we've seen, uh, I have seen in the last, what, almost 20 years, many politicians coming and going. Some of them were more pro-Russian, some of them were more pro-European. So I, I don't think now we're suddenly in a new moment where things will look good. Our region remains to be complicated. You know, the population remains to have, you know, to behave or believe populists, oligarchs. It's not an easy environment, not even in democratic consolidated societies. However, what I think is more important than country leaders is that, especially in the last 10 years, countries like Ukraine and Moldova have been building up, if you want, hard links with Europe. Their markets reoriented towards the European market. For Moldova, over 65%. For Ukraine, around 50% of external trade is with the European Union. Russia is much less of a trading partner. We have energy interconnections and links. As you know, Ukraine buys most of, maybe all of its gas now from, from the West. Moldova this year just built a gas pipeline to Romania and for the first time in its history has alternative resources to Russian gas supplies. So on all of these levels, plus the population have been, has been going on from one election to another through this exercise of changing power through elections, engaging in debate. So. I think on these more structural levels, both Moldova and Ukraine have been becoming more European. Not when it comes to the fight against corruption. I find uh, corruption levels being extremely high in in a very un-European way. But on a lot of the links, through societal links, business links, trade links, energy links, these countries have been more and more connected to Europe, even sometimes under leaders who are not actively promoting that. 
even Yanukovych or Dodon, they have not, they were not credible leaders who could tie their countries to you closer to Europe. But nonetheless, despite their presidencies and actions, this growing trade, you know, visa-free regime, people-to-people contacts, students, elite preferences have been moving more and more towards stronger links with the European Union. And that's a trend which which survives, is very deep, is very strong, it will continue to last for decades. And even if in four or five or eight years we will have politicians governing Ukraine or Moldova who are, again, less pro-European in statements, I find that these links that have been created and will be created will play an important role in keeping both Moldova and Ukraine uh, tied to Europe. It's very interesting that European Union is still a big magnet for uh, those countries like Ukraine and Moldova, although it probably does not perceive itself as a magnet. It's much more shy in its understanding of its, you know, magnetic character. But Russia becomes much less uh, of a magnet for for these countries, and it's it's interesting how to see uh, Russia's soft power influence on Moldova and Ukraine. But let me come to Belarus, and we see those magnificent protests. We see this awful crackdown of protests by by Lukashenko. But when we look at the kind of a midterm, long term prospects, Belarus is lacking these contacts, uh, you know, of businesses, of societies with the European Union. Uh, do you think it it has a chance, you know, to to develop this context and to counteract the the Russian takeover? Well, it's I'm always reluctant to predict the future. What if you allow me? I'll go back to to before returning to Belarus. I'll go back to Moldova and Ukraine. So in Moldova, in the last four years, you had a president who was very pro-Russian. He was unacceptable as an interlocutor in Ukraine and Romania and most European capitals. But because almost 70% of Moldovan trade was with the European Union, this pro-Russian president could not really undertake strong pro-Russian moves. He could not, for example, try to bring Moldova into the Eurasian Union because this would have meant a complete economic catastrophe. So he ended up playing and making statements which were basically very close to Leonid Kuchma's foreign policy of multi-vectorness. So rather than being pro-Russian, he had to play multi-vectorness, Moldova's former president Dodon. Now, if you go to Belarus, you'd see that Belarus is extremely tied economically and infrastructurally to Russia. So it's almost no matter who comes to power to Belarus, the country is just simply too too much tied structurally to Russia, which would limit the future possibilities and foreign policy maneuver space for most uh, Belarusian leaders. However, somewhere I think that if and when Belarus will have a new leader, even if that leader will, um, will of course have to be very careful in how that leader will manage the relationship with Russia. You know, any future leader would allow the European Union to be more open to Belarus, including on economic issues, on diplomatic issues. And suddenly Belarus would acquire more possibilities, not so much to reorient foreign policy, but just more possibilities to benefit as a country, not just with, from ties with Russia, but also from better trade and ties with with the European Union. And of course, Belarus has a geography that puts it in a good place when it comes to benefiting from links with Europe. And it has a highly sophisticated and educated population and a strong IT sector. So as a country, Belarus has a lot of potential, but that potential is hampered and 
limited by the country's current president. So do you think that the strategy of the European Union is to basically stimulate the more ties of Belarusian population, society, business, if Belarus has a new leader, because with Lukashenko it's not possible, and then gradually, step by step, very in a very soft approach, increase the, the leverage of Europe over Belarus. Do you think that's the division? To a, to a degree, yes. I'm not even sure if Europe thinks about this strategy in terms of building up leverage on Belarus. What Europe's interest is, is just to have a normal relationship with a big, well-educated, well-endowed, well-placed country in the center of Europe. So Europe's interest is just to have a relationship with, with Belarus that is comparable to the EU's relationship with Ukraine, with Serbia, with Albania. That's Europe's interest. But of course, by doing so, that will also lead to more European leverage on Belarus in the future. But that's not the purpose of the policy. Let me also look at the wider region. Uh, we had these recently this uh, devastating war in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. You come from Moldova with your, your own frozen conflict in Transnistria. I come from Ukraine with our tragic conflict in Donbass. So we had a lot of speculation in, in Ukrainian information space that the end of this conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is which is in which Armenia seems to be the major loser, uh, will kind of have some leverage on on other uh, frozen conflicts in post-Soviet space. For example, give some you know ideas for Ukraine to reconquer Donbas one day, or maybe for Moldova to reconquer uh, Transnistria. I think that these are very utopian you know estimations, but how do you see? the developments in Nagorno-Karabakh and what will they what what will will they influence uh, on the wider region on the eastern partnership region eastern europe well the events were of course dramatic and tragic but they also exposed several um, somewhat surprising and paradoxical factors i think it was quite surprising the degree to which Russia maintained neutrality between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And we, of course, all remember that Armenia is a country that is very closely allied with Russia. It's part of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, a Russian-led military alliance. It allowed Russia to open, you know, to have a strong military presence on Armenian territory. And the idea that Russia maintained such a degree of a neutral stance between an ally and a military ally and a country like Azerbaijan, aided by Turkey, was of course striking and, and surprising. And by, of course, what Russia says is that it was, it had no treaty obligation to aid, to help Armenia, because Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding seven districts are not part of the internationally recognized border of the Republic of Armenia. But that's not a very convincing argument, partly because we all know that Russia can send military help without talking about it openly or without having treaty obligations to do so. And, of course, Russia found ways to militarily aid, help, you know, Donbass insurgents and Russia sent troops quite almost openly into Donbass without saying it officially. Of course, we all know that Russia has found ways to have a security presence in Libya, in the Central African Republic, but none of these kind of hybrid tactics seem to have been used to help Armenia. That was surprising. Uh, the Russian calculation was that Armenia has nowhere to go anyway, and even if Russia doesn't help Armenia, Armenia will still 
still have to remain a loyal ally because it is threatened by Turkey and because no other country would give Armenia the same degree of military support as Russia does, even if Russia doesn't help Armenia in uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh. At the same time, the second part of the Russian calculation was that by allowing Azerbaijan to regain territory, it would get basically Azerbaijani geopolitical gratitude and that would massively improve relations with Azerbaijan without necessarily making Armenia go elsewhere in terms of alliances. These were interesting facts. Of course, after the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, after this war, we also have a completely new situation where Russian peacekeepers are on the ground. So they will have a much bigger influence on, on Azerbaijan itself. Now I think uh, Azerbaijan has made itself much more vulnerable to potential Russian security pressures in the future. Now you also have a situation where, yes, Azerbaijan has land access to Nahichevan, but also that land access um, will depend in the future on Russian acquiescence to this. So suddenly Russia gains much more leverage on a country like Azerbaijan. So I think to a large degree, Azerbaijan has traded, you know, the recapturing of territories around Nagorno-Karabakh and parts of Nagorno-Karabakh, but in exchange gave Russia much more future levers on the situation in Azerbaijan itself. These are some of the considerations. Now, if we come back to countries like Ukraine and Moldova, I have seen indeed uh, traces of a conversation about a potential military recapturing of the uh, territories in eastern Ukraine. Of course, that conversation took place before in Ukraine through the parallel with Croatia. Now you don't have such a conversation in Moldova. Clearly, there is no desire or plans or capacity to recapture Transnistria through military means. That's completely off the cards for the Republic of Moldova. But more importantly, besides military capacity, over the years, political elites in Moldova have started to appreciate the fact that Transnistria might become Transnistria when it is reintegrated, might be used by internal actors to influence the situation in the Republic of Moldova in ways that limits the freedom of Moldova to pursue foreign policy, to pursue integration with the European Union. And that is why increasing number of leading politicians and foreign policy thinkers and just generally the political and business elite in Moldova would like to see reintegration with Transnistria, but they would like to see this prospect in a way, implemented in a way that does not disrupt Moldova's capacity to integrate with Europe. And that's, of course, a very hard and difficult bargain to, to strike. But for now, especially in recent years, Moldova has invested much more energy into thinking on how to modernize the country, how to bring it closer to Europe, how to fight corruption. And uh, almost by every year, there is much less energy going into the settlement, uh, conflict settlement process with Transnistria. Thank you, Nico. Thank you so much for... For these replies, we have tried to make an overview of the Eastern Partnership region and wider Eastern Europe in 30 minutes. I hope that we uh, partly achieved our goal, but of course the region is much more difficult and it is important for Ukraine to understand what is going around and for international observers of Ukrainian events to understand what is going in the wider Eastern Europe. We had Niko Popescu, who is the director of the Wider Europe Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations and former Foreign uh, Affairs Minister, uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs and European Integration of Moldova. 
under uh, Maya Sandu cabinet. Thanks so much, Nico. And uh, this was a podcast of ukraineworld.org. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay with us. Mm-hmm.